From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. It's been 13 years since the Heller case, 11 years since the McDonald case, and now, finally, another major gun rights case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. And once again, Buckeye Firearms Association is part of the action. We've submitted an amicus brief to the court for a case that could deliver another landmark decision on the Second Amendment. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by BFA Legal Advisor Ron Lemieux. Hi, Ron. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. Well, Ron, BFA recently submitted an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court for an upcoming case. Now, first of all, am I saying that right? Because I hear people say amicus and I hear people say amicus. What's the official word on on how to pronounce that? I'm really not sure if there's an official word, but uh, I normally pronounce it as amicus and amicus? normally hear it pronounced as amicus. And what's that mean? Uh, well, an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief. And it provides the opportunity for non-parties with an interest in a case, a chance to advise and educate a court. Um, It's often filed in uh, appellate cases um, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, also at the federal circuit level, and of course, uh, in appellate cases in state courts as well. So it's for people who are not directly involved in the case, but who have some sort of interest to kind of get their two cents in and, and present information to the court. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, the amicus briefs can be filed by uh, many different types of entities, businesses, municipalities, nonprofits, business associations. They all kind of advocate for a, a unique perspective and uh, sometimes are able to offer uh, sort of a specialized knowledge or um, viewpoint that is helpful to the court in many instances. So the case we're talking about is uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Incorporated, I'm sorry, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Corlette, or at least that's what we've been calling it. Uh, the, the current version of this case, I guess, is called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. So now explain to me, because this this has become confusing. This this case has had different names We've been calling it Corlette until very recently. We did some fundraising on it. We've had some information on the website. So, so why the different names? What what's going on with the, with the name changing in this case? Uh, well, Kevin Bruin uh, currently is uh, the superintendent of the New York State Police. So the caption um, has Bruin in his official capacity as superintendent of the New York State Police, but sometimes that those roles do change. Um, individuals. So uh, one person may serve in that capacity at, at one time or another, and then, you know, it changed position. Uh, I'm assuming that's what happened in this case. So what, what was the original, I mean, like at the very beginning, what was this case called? 
Um, so at the district court level, um, this was called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Beach, B-E-A-C-H. And it was also, uh, that was also how it was titled at the Second Circuit. And then it changed to Corlett for a while. And so now it's Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. Correct. Okay. So just in case our listeners want to look this up, you can probably find it under any of those names, but currently it's Bruin, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. So I want to talk about this case because, I mean, this is very exciting. This is the first case in over a decade that the Supreme Court has officially taken up. But first, let's just back up a little bit and look at a couple of previous cases, which we were also involved in. We've uh, submitted briefs, both in the D.C. versus Heller case, and then two years later in the McDonald versus City of Chicago case. Heller was about 13 years ago, and we did a podcast with Dick Heller fairly recently. And this was this was like when the dam broke because the Supreme Court hadn't heard a case in a very long time. This case came along uh, where Dick Heller could not get a, a license or, or did not have the ability to have a gun in his home in D.C. where he lived and worked. And the course, the, this case went, went through the Supreme Court and they essentially concluded that individuals have a Second Amendment right to have a gun in the home for self-defense. Ron, how important was that case from from a legal perspective? Uh, well, it was it was monumental. Uh, it's a seminal case establishing that there is a pre-existing individual right to possess uh, and carry uh, firearms in the home. Uh, specifically, that's where Heller um, was circumscribed to the home, uh, specifically applied to the home. And uh, the ruling was limited in that respect. And and he was a, a police officer. I mean, he could carry a gun on the job, but he went, he when he would go home and be in his house, he he did not qualify. He was not legally allowed to have a firearm in his home for self defense. And that that's what that case was all about. Yeah, at that time, DC had a uh, ordinance that uh, prohibited firearms handguns uh, in in the home. And the Heller case kind of blew that wide open and established uh, that the Second Amendment was, in fact, uh, a constitutional right that applied to the individual. And it was a pre-existing right based in self-defense. And uh, it, it was the first Supreme United States Supreme Court case that specifically held that. And then two years later, there was a case called McDonald versus the city of Chicago. And I think this case is a little confusing for some people because I know people have asked me, well, you had the Heller case and it said, okay, there's an individual right. So why did you need the McDonald case to follow that up two years later? This was about 11 years ago. And they they found that that individual right from the Heller case is enforceable in the States. So what was that all about? I mean, because if the Supreme Court rules that the Second Amendment is an individual right, why wouldn't it just automatically apply to the states? Well, Heller was, again, as you mentioned, based in D.C., um, and D.C. is not a state. Uh, McDonald um, held that 
the ruling in Heller that, um, yes, in fact, the Second Amendment does protect a pre-existing individual right to possess fire, possess and carry firearms in the home. Uh, that also applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. That's what McDonald was all about. So D.C. versus Heller found that the Second Amendment is an individual right. McDonald said, yeah, that uh, this applies in all the states. It's enforceable in all the states, just like every other right. And then we come fast forward to now with this new case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. And this case is about what? Well, the issue is whether New York State's denial of the petitioner's application for a concealed carry license violated the Second Amendment. Uh, In New York, they require something called proper cause. Some people call it good cause or a special need, but it's specifically listed as a proper cause. So the petitioners in this instance didn't were not able or did not show a proper cause for the issuance of a concealed carry license within New York to be able to carry um, generally for self-defense. They either did not or uh, did not try to show a proper cause or were not able to show a proper cause for this license and therefore after that filed suit. So my understanding is New York has something called the Sullivan Act. And, uh, you know, to my non-legal mind, the way I'm understanding it, is it, it's basically a May issue. It makes New York a, a May issue state. So if you want the carry license, they may give it to you, but they may not. It, it's all up to local law enforcement. So as, as you said, you've, you've got to show proper cause, unlike in Ohio, which is a shall issue state. As long as you fill out the form, pay the fee, do the background check, and you know all the stuff that you're asked to do, you're going to get that license. In New York, you can do everything that they ask you to do, and most likely, in in, in real life, you're not going to get that license. They're, they're just not going to give it to you. They might for certain very important people, but for most people, they won't. So it is that accurate to say that really, the rule really comes down to just New York is a, a may-issue state? I guess for... You know, all practical purposes, you know, you could say it's uh, a May issue. Uh, Definitely, uh, it's not simply uh, do you meet these very specific statutory requirements? Yes, then shall issue. Um, Here in Ohio, we have very specific statutory requirements for the issuance of a concealed handgun license. Uh, Those are very specific, and there is no, you know, kind of vague proper cause standard in Ohio. If you meet the specific statutory requirements in Ohio, uh, the sheriffs here in our counties have to, they shall issue a concealed handgun license. You know, in New York, it's a completely different story. There is a certain level of discretion that law enforcement has when choosing whether or not to issue a license based on proper cause. The proper cause uh, really has actually never been defined, even though, as you said, it has been uh, the law in New York since 1913, as far as I can tell. It's interesting that there there really is no good definition. So I, I think that's where the discretion comes in as well um, on the law enforcement side, determining what that means. At least the courts in the past have said that you have to distinguish yourself 
somehow from the general community uh, that that you have some type of special need to carry a firearm, that there's some type of good cause or proper cause. I think special need probably would be more close to what they're looking for. Again, as I said, you have to distinguish yourself from the general community and even working or living in a high crime area is not enough on its face to show a special need. There really is no clear indication what proper cause means, to be honest. I've talked to people from New York and they'll say that, you know, you you, you have to, uh, you know, get recommendations or have, have people basically sign affidavits that you're of, of good character and things like that. I mean, it really comes down to some ridiculous stuff. And, and I believe New Jersey is even worse. It's, it's very, very difficult in New Jersey to get a carry license unless you're you know, rich or famous or in government or something like that, basically a special favor. So it just it's very, very difficult to get a carry license there. So so the, the as I understand it, the question that this case, the Bruin case, is going to answer is, does New York's law requiring that, that carry license applicants demonstrate that special need you were talking about for self-defense, does that violate the Second Amendment? So I, I guess the way that I've been thinking about all of these cases from Heller all through this case is those first two cases, Heller and McDonald, basically talked about keeping arms. This case is going to talk about bearing arms. Yeah, I think that's a, a correct statement of the issue presented before the court. And part of, part of the, uh, what's happening here is case law is being developed over years and further fleshing out what exactly is protected by the Constitution. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, New Jersey is another state out there. This this case would, let's just hypothetically say, that the uh, Supreme Court decides to strike down the New York law. That would affect six other states right now who have uh, a similar good cause or special need requirement for the issuance of a uh, of a carry license. There is a split right now in the circuit court on whether or not good cause is constitutional. Currently, the first, second, third, fourth, and ninth circuits upheld the good cause requirement. Uh, the D.C. circuit struck down the good cause requirement. It'll be interesting to see how narrow the ruling is in this case. Let's say they uh, they the court agrees that this is a constitutional violation. They could simply say, you know, New York, you have to rewrite your concealed carry laws and, um, you know, send it back to the circuit court, uh, the Second Circuit. Or the court could could go farther and say, you know what, none of this can happen. And, you know, it has to be shall issue. They're, they're, they're you know, you can't have this uh, vague, you know, special need requirement. We're, we'll see. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting. Well, one of the things that I that I find interesting is how much case law there is on other rights. Like, if we were to compare the Second Amendment, basically we only have three, you know two modern cases that have been decided: Heller and McDonald, and then there would be this one. So call it three. How many cases, comparatively, are there for freedom of speech or freedom of religion or some of these other rights that are really well developed? And this is something else I think that a lot of people don't quite get: is that you really have to build these case the case law, as you were saying. Bit by bit, it's like you're building a wall, brick by brick, figuring out what these rights mean. We think that we understand what what the rights mean, 
but you still have to build that legally. How, how far does the court really have to go? How many other cases do we need to really get at the sort of understanding that we have about what the Second Amendment actually means? Well, I think this is, is definitely a, a huge chunk of the equation. You know, in Heller, we had a, a ruling that applied to firearms inside the home. Um, now we're asking the court to rule on a law that regulates the carrying of firearms in public spaces. So, you know, I, I think this is this is definitely uh, the next logical step after Heller. You know, whether or not there's going to be somewhat related or side issues come down the pipe for the Supreme Court, uh, we'll have to see. So let's talk about this amicus brief now that we submitted very recently. And Ron, can you describe that? We, we've said that it's a, a friend of the court brief, and these things are, are submitted by outside people who, are, who have a reason to submit them, but they're not directly involved in the case. And I'm not sure, I didn't count, but there are dozens of uh, amicus briefs being submitted in this case, just from all over the place. Talk about uh, amicus briefs and how important they are and, and why the court really needs them. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, the amicus briefs uh, allow non-parties to advise the court. And these these people, uh, these these entities, these parties, uh, businesses, municipalities, nonprofits, business associations, they all have a unique perspective and they all bring a, spe- a specific uh, knowledge to the table. Uh, they may... Um, there may be broader implications to a law than perhaps the court is even aware of. So this allows uh, these types of brief briefs allow kind of the background to be set uh, on various different uh, issues uh, running the gamut. They are very common now in, in almost all Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court cases, NDs are filing to make us briefs. So our brief can you describe a, what what does the argument in our particular brief say? So the brief of Buckeye Firearms Association, uh, BFA, is joined with uh, professors Robert Leader and Nelson Lund, um, who I would like to recognize right now. Absolutely wonderful, uh, amazing uh, scholars. They both are professors at George Mason University. And they're both very much committed to constitutional law and the Second Amendment and has spoken and written about the issues presented in our brief uh, extensively. So our brief touches on uh, specifically whether or not 18th century American common law shows that states like New York were able and were actually regulating uh, the carrying of firearms in public spaces. Uh, There have been some who have argued that certain case law and common law established early in the 1800s did, in fact, indicate that states were doing this back in the early 1800s. However, our brief clearly shows that any type of restrictions on carrying firearms in public spaces was usually attached to, I'm I'm not going to say usually, it was attached to the requirement that any type of restriction would be to the terror of the people. Um, So if any type of restriction previously uh, in state code was limited to somebody who had a a wicked purpose or a mischievous result in mind, or that they were terrorizing the public, 
somebody who was lawfully carrying a firearms was not prohibited. Was it, uh, these states did not regulate the lawful carrying of firearms in public spaces through common law in the 1800s. And that sounds very similar to the arguments we make today where, you know, somebody will call the police and they'll say, I I see someone with a firearm. And if they're acting properly, they'll say, well, okay, but what are they doing? Are are they doing something illegal? Are they robbing a store? Are they pointing at someone? If the answer is no, it's, well, you know, that's legal. You're allowed to carry in the state of Ohio. So what's the problem? You know, what's your call about? So it sounds like that's really always been the case. You can carry firearms in public unless you have a nefarious purpose, unless you're doing something bad. Yeah. You know, basically, uh, you know, our brief shows that the American common law um, did not criminalize the lawful carry of firearms in public spaces. And it was only uh, the only laws that did criminalize the carrying of firearms were, were for people who abused that right. Uh, as you mentioned, somebody with a nefarious purpose or, or or other type of criminal purpose. So we're submitting our brief that makes that argument. And there are, again, I didn't count them, dozens of other briefs being submitted, all of them making a different argument. So what do the justices do? They'll They'll look at the case itself. They'll read over all of these briefs. Will they take all of them into consideration? Um, how how does that process work? Yeah, they they will take all of it into consideration, and not not only uh, did our brief touch on the issue that we just spoke about, but it also touches on the surety laws that were in place. Uh, there have been some individuals who claim that the surety laws that we had in the 1800s shows that states were in fact allowed to regulate the carrying of firearms in public spaces. However. Again, just like uh, with common law, the surety laws here did not do that. It was only, it would only apply to image individuals who went armed, and they would have to post a bond. But this bond would only be posted if somebody could show that there was a breach of the peace, uh, that that somebody else, let's say a petitioner, had reasonable cause for fear or injury from a person who was carrying firearms in public spaces. So in that instance, if there was some type of breach of a peace, a petitioner could go to uh, could go and and ask for uh, that that individual post a bond. And again, our brief clearly lays out the reasons that this was only done in very specific circumstances where there had been a breach of the peace. And again, it did not apply to the lawful carrying of firearms in public spaces. So, Ron, if you had to make a prediction, what would it be? Uh, I, I know that as an attorney, you you probably hate to do that. But if you were a betting man, what what, what do you think the ruling is going to be on this case? Uh, well, with the current makeup of the court, I, I think that we that there is a very good chance that uh, that the Supreme Court does strike down New York's law uh, that requires a special need or a proper cause. And, uh, you know, as I said, they could give specific instruction uh, very clearly spelling out what are the constitutional bounds of a state uh, when regulating the lawful carrying of firearms in public spaces, or they could ask New York to rewrite the law without a special need or proper cause and, you know, send it back down to the second circuit. Well, I, I mean, I think that's going to be really interesting because New York has been very difficult for a very long time 
And if the court says they strike down the law, you have to rewrite your law. I, I doubt very seriously that they're just going to comply. I think they're going to continue to play games. It will be interesting to see exactly how they react. I think that will be more interesting than the result of the case itself. Yeah. Another really big thing that I think a lot of people are looking for is the, the particular type of scrutiny that should be applied in cases where the Second Amendment is at issue. Generally speaking, there's there's three types of scrutiny that a, a court would use in analyzing a state law to determine whether or not it violates the Constitution. These three types of scrutiny are strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis. Strict scrutiny is the highest. A state law would have to be narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling government interest. And compelling is, you know, highlighting the word compelling being a strict standard and also the law having to be very narrowly tailored to achieve that very compelling uh, government interest. So, you know, it would be great if the court would, you know, spell out instances where strict scrutiny should be applied in Second Amendment cases. In a lot of instances, federal courts, state courts, circuit courts have been applying a heightened scrutiny of some sort, but not necessarily strict scrutiny. So, for instance, um, the case that we're talking about now, one of the uh, prior cases that the Second Circuit actually cited as the reasons uh, why they upheld the New York law was Kachowski v. County of Westchester, where the Second Circuit applied intermediate scrutiny because they had found that there was a, uh, some type of tradition of or in history of tradition where the state did regulate the uh, public carry of firearms. As you mentioned, uh, you know, this has been the law for over 100 years. So, you know, I think as I think a lot of Second Amendment advocates are looking for the court to say, no, you need to apply strict scrutiny in these types of instances and lay out a better roadmap for courts on what type of scrutiny to apply. The case we're talking about, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, and our amicus brief is in. Other amicus briefs have been submitted This is going to be argued in the fall, and the expectation is there's going to be a decision sometime in 2022. Ron, do you have any idea about when a decision might come out? What, When in the year would they do that next year? Maybe during the last part of the winter in early 2022 or maybe in the spring. Wow. So we've got a long wait. Uh, This is is going to be kind of a nail-biter. Huge case. If you want to look up information on this, we have something on our website, a couple of stories. We'll be putting additional information up there about our particular amicus brief, and you can read it. It's actually pretty readable. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. So, uh, you know, I've got my fingers crossed, Ron. hope we have a good decision. This could be, uh, this could be really big. Thanks for being on the podcast and explaining all this for us. Hope to have you back. And certainly when there's a decision, we'll have you back and talk about all the particulars. Thanks for having me, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter 
at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code podcast to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.